Welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Jesse Case. I'm Matt Kirshen, and we, we, we're a little late with this one. We've been traveling. We've all been off in places. Andy's we been have. swimming up north. I'm in Vegas right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've just been wandering around my house. Uh, and becoming Twitter famous. Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, no, but we're, we're going to get right into it. I'm sure you've noticed if you click download or whatever, um, it's a shorter one today. We got, we got another one coming up. Uh, within a week so uh, but we're gonna get right into it because we we, we got a real actual scientist on so exactly we're gonna learn guys long. we're gonna learn about hairstyling we're gonna learn about skincare <laughs> we have cosmetologist <laughs> brian keating everybody oh no jesse i think oh what what i think you might have misread yeah no the words are similar um what happened if you look a little closer at that word um, brian keating yes thank you <laughs> yeah, so I have skincare questions. You okay, know? let's uh, let's get into this. Brian, aloe vera, real? <laughs> I cannot verify. I cannot verify that. Um, so, so we have this is someone who we, we've been talking for a while, but we first met on on Star Talk when I was the comedy guest and he was the actual scientist guest, but also scientist who. Who has a podcast and performs and and is engaged in the pop, involved in the public engagement with science as well as actual proper research into, I don't know, just the beginning of time, just just those little questions. Mm-hmm. So Brian, how h- how did the universe start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually I get a preface on that. I have a simple question, you know, that you could probably answer in just a minute or two. How did the universe <laughs> get started? Well, the actual thing, guys, you might not uh, believe this, but among my fellow professional cosmologist, there's currently a raging controversy brewing, or as Matt would say, controversy. No, no, controversy. Contro- controversy. Controversy. Con- yes, controversy, yes, yes, yeah. Proper British. Yeah, so, yeah, so what's happening is that there's a debate as to how the universe came to exist and whether or not there are multiple universes in either space and or in time, meaning... There could be multiple universes in space, you know, parallel universes. There are many different uh, ideas about that dating back to antiquity. And there's also an equal number of of ideas about multiple universes in time and uh, so-called cyclical universes that come in and out of flitting and fluttering into and out of existence. And this debate is raging currently in the field of professional cosmologists, knockdown, drag out brawls. How, how like heated does it get? Does it does it come to blows? Well, there is there's one multiverse where it does. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't say heated, although you know it did occur in the in the pages of a very august journal called Scientific American, where there was an article promulgated by three of my friends uh, uh, who have been uh, you know kind of supporters of this new incarnation of what's called a cyclic possibly eternal cosmology, a bouncing cosmological model where our current universe emerged from the crumpling of, a, of the cosmic space-time of a previous universe. And, and it could have been an endless cycle of such universes uh, throughout an uh, infinite amount of time. And they wrote an article not really describing their own model, although they do have a very, um, you know, kind of cogent and self-consistent model that does incorporate those features. But... They also uh, took aim at the most dominant, powerful, heavyweight champion of the universe, which is called inflation or cosmic inflation, which 
which posits that the universe began no with with basically a singularity a quantum fluctuation out of nothingness from nothingness came everything and that uh stands in stark contrast to a universe that doesn't have the features of a bouncing or cyclical uh cosmogony a cosmogenesis uh without an event without a big bang without uh a genesis event so they not only criticized the dominant paradigm they also came up with an alternative and I think that's really fascinating. So I, I would I wouldn't just get this clear and get this straight in my own head. Just inflation is separate from expansion, right? Correct. Expansion of the universe is something that all the models are in agreement on. Yes, every every. Well, I mean, I get email. I mean, I'm sure you guys get the emails too, Professor Keating, uh, I, Professor Kirshen. I, I only get I only get that tagged in when I've been on Star Talk and people start tagging me in Twitter questions like. They'll post an episode and then people will start replying with questions about the universe. And I'm always tempted to reply like, would you say, <laughs> is this correct? And, and it's just like, no, it's definitely not. It's, I, can, I don't know why it's wrong, but I do know it's wrong. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Whenever I get these emails, it's, it's always like, you know, Professor Keating, I'm not a cosmologist, but if you help me with the math, we can split the <laughs> Nobel Prize that comes from it. <laughs> Um, it's like I used to, you guys, you know, made fun of, uh, of this notion of cosmetology, but the other thing I get confused for and with, and if people could see me, by the way, they would know that I am certainly in, in touch with the cosmo, cosmo, uh, <laughs> cosmetological arts instead of just the, co no, no, they wouldn't. That. <laughs> but the other thing I get confused with is being as a, an astrologer, right? So I always get asked, you know, uh, you know, what's my, what's my horoscope or what does the future portend for me? And I used to, you know, guys, I used to just basically say, look, guys, uh, or whoever was asking, I'm not an astrologer, I'm an astronomer, you know, but then I decided, screw it, I'm gonna have some fun with this. So yeah. whenever I do that, now someone asks me, I'm a Pisces, I'm like, oh, shoot, uh, <laughs> you know, that lump on Duck. your butt, <laughs> yeah. yeah, your lump on your butt, you got to have that looked at that thing is cancer. Uh, don't sleep on that. Uh, so yeah, so I, I tend to get confused with those two different, um, those two different professions. But I would say, Indeed, every professional astronomer that is, you know, kind of working in the in the field is is believes that not only is the universe expanding, but the rate of its expansion is increasing with time as if somebody uh, is holding down the cosmic accelerator pedal. Hmm. OK, but, but that's independent so of inflation, you're saying. That is independent of inflation. So, in other words, what what happens a lot well, in one science? One trip to the gas pump can tell you that, Andy. You get down there, you get, oh boy, the Bidenomics. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, man. Uh, so, exactly. So, what 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 happened was uh, what happens typically in science, and and you guys have probably uh, encountered this many times. Is what scientists typically do is we don't usually come up with something completely ab initio, just from scratch, from the vacuum. Instead, we notice some flaw, some problem, some, some gap in our current understanding of what's the current scientific model. And that could be in biology, it could be in, it could be in ecology, it could be in astronomy. And what we look for, what are the flaws in that model? Because no model is correct. There, there's no such thing as a- I'm pretty sure all the secrets of the universe are known, Brian. I don't know if yeah. I like you coming on here and telling me that we don't know everything about the cosmos. And let's take us out. Andy, take us out. Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's been pretty settled. Thank you right. for listening. So, <laughs> look, if, if science were settleable, if even the, 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 the process of settling science was possible, then we'd be stuck 
believing that there's, you know, four substances, earth, fire, air, and water. Uh, and we think that heavy objects fall faster than light objects. Because after all, Aristotle was the Einstein of his day. And right. he ha- was basically wrong about every single scientific fact with the exception of one fact. Do you know what he was right about, guys? Aristotle. Um, some method of debate. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. He, uh, well, that, well, that's philosophy. But yes, he certainly codified the laws of philosophy. And my favorite word, syllogism, a word that sounds dirty, but it's not. But it's not. Uh, but no, no, no. <laughs> he was correct about the very important, uh, ultra specific for my line of work and where I live. And that was that whales are mammals and that they aren't fish. That's mm. basically one of the few things he got right in science. Um, and, and he did so because he did observations, but he didn't think to do observations of the fact that a heavy object and a light object fall at the same rate. He didn't even think that. He just assumed that that was true. And so uh, over time, people like Galileo and Einstein and Newton, they came along and said, look, you're very smart. You knew about whales, but uh, maybe your physics ain't so great. And so they corrected the flaws of the gaps in his logic. Same thing happens in astronomy. We came up, we thought for millions of, not millions, we thought for thousands of years at least that the universe was infinitely old, static, unchanging. Even the great Einstein believed that to be true. Uh, and there are a variety of reasons for that. But then along comes, uh, along comes Hubble with data that shows the universe is not only dynamic, changing in time, but it's getting bigger and things that are farther away are moving faster from us. So in other words, he corrected flaws in, say, the Einsteinian cosmology, uh, which had held sway for thousands of years. And then uh, this guy came along in the uh, 1980s named Alan Guth, and he said, wait a second, there are problems in the Big Bang itself. So even Hubble was wrong. And we're just keep on, we keep on doing that. And what these guys and gals who are thinking about these alternatives to inflation, they are thinking about a model that incorporates all the successes of the Big Bang, all the successes of Einstein, all the successes of Newton, but it also incorporates a different approach to coming up with a universe that is currently undergoing an accelerated expansion. It has to solve all the previous things that were solved, but it has to do more as well. well Sounds like whales need another look. You know, that's what I'm taking from this. Is, has anyone checked on the whales? Have we touched one in a while? Because it sounds like this. Uh, has anyone truly observed a whale? <laughs> right. Because normally, when you go on those boat trips to try and observe them, they never show up. Well, it's <laughs> that's like, right. I, I just love that the whale is the last thing he had left. If that got overturned, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> the podcast cut out now. That's what people think I'm an expert. <laughs> Shut your blowhole, Keating. <laughs> so I, I still don't quite. So you were just describing what I thought you said was expansion, but or did you define inflation yet or not? No. So, oh, okay. Sorry, I, sorry. Yeah. So, so I just described the process of, you know, the scientific method, a, a minor important detail. Uh, sure. So what we do is we look for flaws in the currently accepted paradigm or approach to science. So what inflation did is say, look, Hubble is right. The universe is expanding. It expanding from some if you rewind the movie of the universe, if all the galaxies are moving away from each other, tomorrow they'll be farther away than they are today. And in fact, we see that. And we rewind the movie backwards, they must have been closer and closer. Eventually, just simple calculation based on uh, relativistic quantum mechanics and Einstein's theory of general relativity that I'm sure you guys learned in kindergarten, when you, re- when you reveal and revert back to a certain time, you get effectively all of space and time existing in effectively a single point. Now, that is not consistent with other laws of physics, including general relativity and reconciling that with quantum mechanics, but never mind. 
Um, that when you do when they did that extrapolation, they realized, okay, we don't understand how the universe began the actual moment of creation that was later called as a pejorative, as Matt knows from being British, uh, Edwin, uh, uh, Fred Hoyle, who is a renowned astronomer, he called it the Big Bang, which I guess, Matt, true or false, that's a, that's a, that's a syllogism for uh, a synonym for uh, orgasm. Is that correct? I, I've been told that's true in I British mean, English. I mean, to, to bang someone is, is, is to have sex, so... But there's no, no, the British, the British don't orgasm. <laughs> we all, you know, it's like, uh, I guess, I guess you could ref- use it to refer to the post-coital handshake. Sure. Yes. Yes. The, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, very proper indeed. So, um, so when, when Hoyle came up with that, it was a pejorative, it was an insult. This is so ridiculous. There was a huge explosion, a cosmic orgasm. Uh, no, it's ridiculous. So he had a model that was kind of like a steady state universe that had been around forever. We, we don't have to get into that. But, but Hubble, by looking at data, showed the universe was expanding. It was getting bigger and bigger with time, and it was getting bigger and bigger on larger and larger scales. Now, what's the natural question? Well, what caused that to happen in the first place? And that's what inflation purports to do. It purports to explain how, what started the universe expanding in the first place, and why uh, was it uh, so, so violently accelerated at the early times, and how can that possibly be reconciled by observations that we have today? And in fact, that's my area of research. I build telescopes along with my colleagues that look for the shrapnel from the big bang itself hoping to learn how the expansion began in the first place so inflation purports to explain that and we can get into the mechanism by which it does so but that is the key feature of inflation it explains how the universe started expanding and explains some of the features that we observe today okay and and that idea that if you accept inflation as as the going theory then that uh, <clears throat> automatically discounts the possibility that con- it contracts back together at the end of its existence? Or is there any version of believing in that that also has that m- cyclical model that you were talking about? Yeah, so that that is the hallmark of the cyclical or bouncing models. They are inconsistent with inflation. In other okay. words, inf- inflation uh, does not necessarily predict a an eventual collapse of the universe. It doesn't have anything necessarily to say about it. But where they uh, where they are on the same kind of footing is in the in the early universe. So they both agree the universe has been expanding. Both the bouncing or cyclical models and the inflation model uh, believes that there was once a moment in time when most of the matter in the universe was uh, was compressed and extended uh, over a very very sh- small region of space time. And on that they do not uh, disagree. What they disagree on is what happened 10 minutes before that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in other words, was there a pre-existing space-time before our current observable universe came into existence? Inflation says no, and cyclical models say yes. So in those kind of formats, they disagree quite violently. God, I can't even wrap my head around the the fact that it's not just space that was one point, it was space-time, so then... The, I don't know. Those so time didn't of, exist. Right. Yeah, so time I, starts at <laughs> at the Big Bang, but also there was a universe before that. Is that am I am I misunderstanding this? Uh, that time in the Big Bang context uh, effectively begins at the Big Bang. So we okay. today sit at a moment which, in the Big Bang model, is thirteen point eight billion years after the expansion of space and time began. 
in the bouncing model, it's also 13.8 billion years after the earliest possible um, physical uh, phenomena occurred in our universe. It almost seems like they can both exist because if time itself stops, then it's sort of a moot point asking what's before. And you could say it's cyclical because you could sort of be just running it in reverse kind of or something. Like, is that a thing anybody thinks? Um, I have not so, eaten any edibles yes. today, I promise. <laughs> uh, yes, effectively, yes. There are people that believe exactly as you say, that the universe has to can kind of be thought of as, as, as running backwards uh, at this specific point in equal and opposite ways before the collapse uh, sort of uh, uh, events uh, events uh, basically going from high entropy to low entropy so from chaotic and disordered to more and more ordered and then uh and then the uh the inflationary model would would say that there is no left side of the diagram there's nothing to the left of the origin of time so they don't have to answer that question so uh, and then the right side they both agree on effectively now there are some you know the the aficionados out there that will will note that they they disagree also kind of violently on other aspects to the right of the zero point in the big bang scenario but uh but their main point of disagreement uh, revolves around that initial moment so in the in the inflation model in the bit which is synonymous with the big bang there is a singularity and a, a space-time divide by zero error where the um, where the properties of quantum mechanics and gravity are not currently reconcilable there are attempts like string theory and, and m theory and other things to reconcile those but that's not relevant necessarily for what happens afterwards um but they they so in, in fact the main kind of positive feature that the proponents of the cyclic universe believe is that they don't need a singularity in other words they don't have to invoke infinite density infinite temperature infinite pressure um at all which which is actually very appealing right because we talk about these singularities in a black hole or in the big bang but we don't really have any evidence of anything in nature that's infinite except as einstein said human stupidity uh, so there's nothing physical, right? How would you go from infinite temperature to, you know, when I talk to my kids and when I, when I get them a present or something, try to buy their love as I often do, I say, you know, <laughs> they say, I love you infinity. And I say, you should have said infinity plus one, but you know, how do you go from infinity to infinity divided by two? It's still infinity. So that's a big problem for, for theories that do have singularities, which the uh, big bang model has to reconcile. And you, and of the truth models, the one that you, uh, enjoy the most right now. <laughs> See, I wasn't aware that the Big Bang theory. This is my own my own ignorance, accidentally being correct ish, which happened. It's how I've bumbled my way through life. Um, I wasn't aware that it was supposed to be infinite. I always thought the Big Bang, the expansion, all of it was still finite. Um, it's like this is the amount that we're working with. This will run out and go cold and die. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I never, um, I guess I wasn't aware that the uh, mass was considered infinite. I, I've always considered the universe to be limited 
even in its uh, vast yeah. scope. So you can get infinity in two different ways. You could have uh, an infinite amount of mass in a finite region, or you could have a finite mass in an infinitesimal region. So it, right, it, it's right. certainly true that, that, well, mass is not really something we talk of as being conserved, right? Because mass is not a conserved quantity. It's not possible to have equal amounts of uh, a matter that then convert into other forms of matter. We don't think of that as sacrosanct in physics, but we do think of as sacred as conservation of energy, which you can relate energy to mass, but things with energy don't necessarily have mass. You know, look up photon in the in the dictionary. Right. It has no mass, but it has energy. I, I guess I just didn't I didn't think it involved infinite energy. You know, well, I just thought saying- it was but if you have a finite amount of mass, but you divide it by an in, by zero volume, like if, if you have a finite amount of mass that, that is in no amount of space, then there's infinite density, which gives you the infinity problem, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, is yeah, it, there, yeah. There, there, uh, there's definitely a notion of that, exactly. It's the dividing by zero part. It's the dividing by it. zero part, exactly. Hmm. So, so of those two, though, you are, you are the cyclical or you are the uh, inflationary? I don't like to you know, think about what I am or what I'm not. <laughs> I don't like labels, man. Like, it's, it's dangerous, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I would like to to really think about, um, you know, approaching it from the perspective of evidence. So I, I don't think about things in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, whether or not they appeal to me aesthetically, uh, other than, you know, there is sort of a, an uh, aesthetic you know, speaking of cosmetology, uh, there's certain, a certain aesthetic to simplicity, but that doesn't really necessarily mandate, you know, quantum field theory is not simple. Um, and it's not even elegant or beautiful to look at, but it happens to be our most precise theory in all of nature. So um, I tend to look for evidence. So what I'm trying to do is prove both of these guys wrong. I mean, basically, if I, the way I make my bones is I build experiments with my brilliant students and colleagues around the world, and we look for any physical traces of either particular model. And what we get gives us the greatest joy is not proving somebody right. <laughs> it's usually proving somebody wrong. In other words, like the, the folks at the Large Hadron Collider would have gotten a lot more kind of attention and, <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, uh, Twitter likes and so forth if they had, you know, disproven the Higgs boson's existence. <laughs> uh, you know, mm. but, but in fact, they, were, yeah, they had much more integrity than I do, right? So, so what they did <laughs> is they, they just laid out the evidence. They did what's called a blind analysis where they don't know what the data will show until they've proven to themselves that they understand all the ways that they could be misled. And that's a very big problem. When you ask me, which do I prefer, there is a bias called confirmation bias that can emerge, where it's just natural that you want to prove something and be right. Now, these theorists definitely want to be right. There's no, uh, there's no love lost between those that believe. I mean, this article in Scientific American by Paul Steinhardt, Anna Aegis, and Avi Loeb, um, it was met by a poison pen letter by 35 other of my friends, uh, including, I think, six Nobel Prize winners that said that they're full of it and uh, that they're completely wrong. So and, and they really there's like, you know, like I said, there's not like blows being, you know, foisted upon one another. There's no fisticuffs. But at the same time, there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of tension in, in the universe of cosmologists. They both I want to build a crisp decisive experiment. I want to do that that either invalidates a model 
or provides as much, again, you can't prove a model of physics. You, can, you can't do it in the same way you can prove Fermat's last theorem in mathematics. We don't do that in physics. Our job is not to prove things, it's to disprove everything else. And that's kind of the goal of experimental physicists. So that's what we're trying to do, and we will follow it where the data lead us. Oh, well, I suppose I'm a bit confused as to how one would invalidate the other. If, you know what I mean? If it's cyclical, let's say, I mean, and I know that like, <clears throat> Even to say such a thing, you have to, um, just in our language, you have to untether time from space. Like, I know that they, you know, they're, they're tethered. But uh, so the, the concepts of time and space would change at the same time and blah, blah, blah. So thinking about it linearly doesn't really work so well um, when space is changing. But let's say, uh, you know, uh, um, expanding collapsing cyclical whatever i um i just i guess i don't understand how okay if you does that make sense like okay you go back to the big bang right fair enough what if what if it is like okay this is an accurate model but it then comes before then we go backwards and we're expanding again so they are fundamentally incompatible in, in that one okay. is is and and actually I haven't really gotten to the juiciest bits of their violent uh, disagreement. Mm. So the main and I'm thing sorry if my question was so simple too. I I like uh, thinking about time before like uh, breakfast this morning is exhausting for me. <laughs> I you know what I mean. I, I thinking about last night is too much. I'm like uh, I always know. say, you know, people think, <laughs> oh, you're so smart, you know. But, uh, you know, I still have to sing the alphabet song to remember what comes after Q. You know, I'm not I'm not that. I'm just a simple experimental. <laughs> sure. An insurrection is the answer. Um, thank, oh, you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Brutal. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, you know, what's what's important to realize here is that um, when we think about how the universe came to be, the question of the origin of the universe is not necessarily a part of physics itself. In other words, uh, or, or cosmology itself. In other words, when you know, when students at UC San Diego go and they're studying um, invertebrate biology, okay, let, let's say they're studying, they don't have to think about like the origin of life, you know, or or even like the origin of species. Like, there, that's not that's not their responsibility. Uh, in yeah. other words. Um, and so I think people take a little bit too far, and I know why they do it, because in science, it's natural to want to explain as much as you can with as little assumption, a few assumptions as you can. Right. But in, in the same context, we feel this extra burden, I think, because uh, because we have, you know, this this borderline um, obsession with with I'm going to say it. I'm going to use the R word. You guys ready? You got to bleed. Is this? Am I free to be as, as lewd and lascivious as I am on my own podcast? Get into the impossible. Yep. Yes. Bring it up. Bring okay. It up. You ready? I'm going to hit you with the, with the R word. Religion. Religion. Okay. okay. Mm. So probably science. Now we're going to go definitely religion. Okay. So okay. Um, when we when we think about the origin of the universe, there aren't like when I study when my colleagues say down the hall from me are studying um, the properties of a superconductor at in a below its critical temperature inside of a mag, you know, they don't have to think about like, was God involved? <laughs> like, in the, but in cosmology, there are, you know, obvious connections throughout and through to antiquity on the border between science and theology and the metaphysical. So 
I think a lot of times scientists in my field of cosmology, in an attempt to extract something meaningful and significant from, uh, from, and I put this in quotes, but I don't mean it like as a pejorative, from mere knowledge, they will conflate sometimes their job with that of a philosopher or theologian or whatever. And it's totally fine to do that, but I think they should be, they should be honest and have integrity when they do that to admit that's what they're doing. In other words, what we do as scientists, the word scientist, as you guys know, probably, uh, it means it means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. Where, what does the word wisdom mean or what does it come from in Latin? It comes from sapienza or sapient, which means to know. And, and it really harkens back to, to I'm going to say it again, uh, the B word, the Bible, right? So what do we know? We know the tree of knowledge. I mean, that's, this is where these th- words came from. You can argue with it. You might not like it, but that's where these words came from. Just like I don't like that astro- astrology is the father or mother field for astronomy. Well, that's just the fact, right? So all I'm saying is that what we, what we as human beings and lay people care about typically is wisdom. And what science is concerned with is knowledge. And sometimes scientists can be have a lot of wisdom, although a lot of times, you know, if you've ever seen some of the driving that they do around, you know, the neighborhood, you would be forgiven for thinking they're not that wise. Uh, uh, but but anyway, I think sometimes they do change to border almost on the theological in an attempt to extract, understandably, some wisdom from their and meaning from their work. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. But it's also I, I wonder how much of that is a reverse uh, um a symptom of the other if if your job just for the literal information don't tie it to anything else just the information is how did the universe come to be in the state that it is today just being such a massive unknown with implications people will associate it as uh, replacing theology or having answers that they've always wanted a crisp answer to um and then the answers aren't crisp you know, so it gets it gets weird. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I would just think that, like, if you're trying to, I mean, it's such a massive thing that has been uh, explained with religion for so long that it's sort of like, I, I mean, there's crossover, but I don't think it's the scientist's fault that there's crossover. Um, just because it's no. such a fundamentally religious sounding question, it lends itself to that. Like, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, if the Bible was all about worms, then the these invertebrate students would have the same issue. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It'd be like, oh, shit, they're researching. Wor- they know they're learning about worms. And this our whole religion is based on worms. You know, um, they're going <laughs> to they're finding out new worm stuff. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's true. And, and obviously, you know, people do think about this in the context not of worms so much as as uh, and I don't know about that fascination, obsession you have with worms. That's kind of weird. But but anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, the question I have is whether or not we can really dissociate the two the two issues. And I think the violent disagreement comes from uh, a particular feature of inflation that is not present in the bouncing model. And that's called the multiverse. And so we talked about the multiverse at the very beginning of this episode. And now I'll, I'll bring us back to that uh, subject. So in inflation, you have to start with some existing, pre-existing space-time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a universe. Uh, in other words, you can have empty, uh, what's called empty space-time, which is really, you know, almost like a mathematical entity. It doesn't have a reality any more than, you know, like if I ask you what's an electron, 
you might picture a tiny little spinning ball of char, you know, but that's not really what it is. I mean, what that's a representation of what it is. And so another representation of it is what's called a Dirac, you know, spinner that can be uh, spin one half up or spin one half down. That That's not as evocative as a little spinning, glowing, you know, metallic colored billiard ball, but they're both representations, right? So another way you can represent the universe is, is a set of mathematical points the same way that mass, spin, and charge characterize every subatomic particle. They're all fungible. Another word that sounds dirty, but it's not. <laughs> uh, but taking that uh, to the extreme, that you have to kind of posit there was a pre-existing space-time uh, in which there was the existence of something called a quantum field. That quantum field instantiates the inflationary process, and it's called the inflaton, very creatively. And the inflaton is a quantum field like the Higgs field that fills all of space and time and its interactions and its uh, manifestations are as we, as we perceive them to be fluctuations. Those fluctuations then seed the, both the expansion of space and time and the formation of enormous cosmic structures, eventually leading to galaxies and clusters, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, this substance exists in a pre-existing uh, um, uh, version of the universe that was purely mathematical. It was, it was pure space and time. Uh, and there were just connections between points and there were events, but there was no reality like there was no Earth. There's nothing to measure the you know, position or space with respect to. And yet there is this all-pervasive quantum field. This is the inflation paradigm. Now, that, that's not super satisfying. I can, I can tell there's billions of questions to ask, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just leave those aside in the interest of time and say that the existence of this field then mandates by the laws of quantum mechanics that the expansion never stops. It can stop in certain small restricted regions of the universe, just like a chemical. Imagine like a huge beaker, you know, enormous beaker, bigger than the Earth, and it's filled with, um, you know, ice that's freezing, say, or ice that's melting. Um, that reaction uh, occurs at different places at different times, just from random statistical fluctuations in the property, temperature, density, pressure of the ice. Now, um, so it doesn't happen instantaneously everywhere. So it can stop melting in one region of this enormous beaker at one point, but still go on um, melting and therefore, uh, uh, you know, condensing in other regions of the of this beaker. And that's sort of what happens with inflation, or at least the original models of inflation. Things have gotten more and more refined. But all of them share this feature that somewhere in this vast mathematical space-time, there is an infinite number of universes spawning, existing, expanding. Some collapse immediately, some spawn and, and expand forever. Some are just right in that they have just the right amount of energy, dark matter, ordinary matter, etc., to exist for at least 13 billion years, so there can be, you know, uh, people, physicists, podcasters, etc., to ask questions about how it came into existence. That's kind of endemic to every inflationary model. In contradistinction, the bouncing models do not evo invoke an inflationary quantum field to begin with; therefore, they have no need for the multiverse. That's their most violent form of disagreement. And where they, uh, you know, really butt heads, um, and uh, that, that occurs 
at the point at which it's it it does seem that anything could possibly happen in the multiverse as 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 one of you guys said i forget who um you know like we have we can have an infinite set of possibilities that means that i'm hosting a a, a podcast called probably science and you guys are hosting the best selling podcast into the impossible somewhere that's happened <laughs> Uh, who, who, who in our current universe hosts that one, Brian? Uh, that's uh, Mishkern Kirschmike or something. I don't know. So, so when you're describing that quantum field model of universes fluctuating in and out of existence, you don't, they're not, dumb question, they're not like in the same three-dimensional space. I thought also part of it was that they're, how do extra dimensions come into that or don't they and is that a thing i'm just uh grabbing from like marvel or something uh so so uh, can you rephrase the question i well the, so the, the i marvel thought you were saying like at the same time <clears throat> i guess what is time if, um th these things aren't like cropping up uh in the same three space right like or are they Oh yeah, you know they are in in a vast you know three space that extends to infinity in all three spatial dimensions. Yes, that's oh, one version. Okay, one version that does happen. Okay, I thought I just assumed that couldn't be the case, but it's just an infinite three space, and there's yeah. universes popping in and out of it, but they'll never like collide literally, or could they yeah. collide? Um, yeah, they could collide, and that would be physical evidence of how uh, that could occur. Um, you know, there could be a manifestation on the cosmic microwave background that I study predicted to be, uh, you know, basically the result of a collision of these bubble universes and where they overlap, there could be an interaction and that interaction could, uh, could be visible. So yes, there are ways to, to essentially provide evidence for the multiverse. Uh, but again, there's, there's, there's more than one version of the multiverse. There's, um, there's a version of the multiverse that is infinite in uh, terms of numbers of universes and in terms of the variety of physical phenomena that take place inside of each universe. In other words, in some universes, not only are there different, you know, people um, left-handed instead of being right-handed and that, you know, but there's also the speed of light is slower than the speed of sound in some universes, or there, there could be gravitational constant that's much, much smaller than in other universes in our universe. But we don't have any knowledge of that, right? So there's no evidence for that right now, just like there's no evidence for, for life on other planets right now. So if you ask, what's the probability of there being life on other planets, uh, a good scientist should basically say zero. And I, I got into some trouble talking about that with, with Neil and, and, my, and, and Matt last time. But, but in reality, there is no evidence for life in other planets right now. That doesn't mean there are, is no life on other planets. It's just if you ask the question of the evidence for life right now, it's non-existent. So if you ask what's the prior probability you can impute for the existence of life, you have to say based on evidence, it's zero, but there, uh, a good scientist will always give you uh, an error bar and, un, and a bracketing their uncertainty in that calculation. And we always hear about the, the Drake equation and, uh, and how there must, there's such a huge number of planets. It should be very likely, but, uh, but that's a very hollow argument. I've never bought that argument. I've tried to huh. get Frank, Frank Drake on my podcast just to dress him down. You know, that guy, <laughs> he not only has uh, an equation named after him, he has a cake named after him. <laughs> 
a Drake's duck? cake. I mean, this is not fair. Huge rap career. It's a, it's a, <laughs> this guy does everything. This guy's got have you memes. Heard his thought, have you heard his thoughts on whales? He's trying yeah. to he's trying to change it all up. He's on um, the I mean, everything. Um, so we, I didn't, we also can't we can't mention the multiverse without uh, we're contractually obliged to point out that it was first proposed by the father of the front man of the eels. Oh, that's yes. Right. Oh, yes. That's right. I'm hearing that at some point. So, yeah, I, it, it just it can't be brought up on this podcast without mentioning that. So that's right. It's a contractually obligated to mention that. I, Hugh Everett, father of Mark, aka. E. Um, incredible. So, uh, can we talk about cosmic uh, microwave background? Because, um, well, also while we're plugging your stuff, that's that's the subject of one of your books as well, and bicep. Yeah. The yeah, my first book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. My second book is called uh, Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. This third book is called Why Won't You Give Me a Goddamn Nobel Prize? <laughs> no, uh, I'm not that obsessed with it, but, uh, but on my podcast... Into hey, the hey Nobel, you up? <laughs> you up? That's a Drake song, I think, right? Um, so, um, but uh, I talk about in Losing the Nobel Prize is a story of how we searched for inflation. We claimed we detected inflation. We uh, saw the signals, so-called primordial gravitational waves, which we can talk about in a future episode, maybe. Uh, and these, pre- these primordial gravitational waves are the harbinger, the closest thing to uh, physical evidence of the Big Bang beginning with inflation. We claim we did it, so we shouldn't be having this podcast about possibly ruling out or in the, the multi... No, but obviously we retracted it, and we retracted that claim based on the fact that we eventually realized we could not rule out an imposter signal that was mimicking the inflationary gravitational wave signature, and that signature that imposed upon us, the imposter was created by the humblest substance in the universe, which my people call schmutz, uh, <laughs> or, or in other words, you can call it uh, cosmic dust. And speaking of cosmic dust, I want to extend a special offer. So I, I extended this to Neil and his audience, and I, and I got some takers, but I, I know your audience is the at least the second or third brightest audience in the universe after mine. And, <laughs> and, 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 and but um, yep. but. And that's, I'm going to send uh, your listeners in the USA only. Unfortunately, I cannot do this for people outside the USA. But if they go to my website, briankeating.com slash list, I will send you for the first hundred people that, that sign up. And I think we can get to a hundred, beat those star talk listeners. Uh, we can, I will send you a meteorite and that meteorite, a tiny little fragment of a, of an enormous meteorite. And I'll send you some information about it. That is space dust. That is a little chunk. I'll send you some of the guys will get a magnet that you can play around with this. This becomes incredibly, uh, incredibly dominant and important because of that very thing that I mentioned earlier, which is confirmation bias. I was so fixated. We were so fixated as a team on BICEP, finding the cosmic signal, winning the Nobel Prize in my case, et cetera, for, for confirming that inflation took place, that we, uh, we originally published a result that claimed that detection to be uh, made 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 good, and later we had to obviously retract it. But I, I don't have any ill will, and so like I say, if you want a real fragment of space dust of a meteorite that's 4.5 billion years old, and including some uh, some documentation, authenticity, uh, X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy that I did on it, um, then just go sign up for my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, and I will send it out to the first 100 people in the U.S. that subscribe. That's a pretty sweet offer. That is a sweet that's offer. A pretty, <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you're the... 
I'm going to say definitely the first guest in many, many years of doing this podcast now who has offered to send anything, let alone something from actual space <laughs> to, send to any of our listeners. Well, then yeah. you guys get the bill afterwards. So right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you talked about the actual way that you measure things because you're doing all this discussion earlier about knowledge versus wisdom. And I'm like, that must mean empirical versus non. So like, what, what is involved in setting up an experiment when your job is to figure out how the universe started? Like, what does that literally mean we're going to do an experiment? Yeah. So uh, in cosmology, uh, typically, we, we do not have the advantage uh, in astronomy in general of being able to do an experiment. What's an experiment? It's, it's not too dissimilar from what you learned in high school, right? Uh, you take a pack of cigarettes behind your parents. But no, no, you don't do that. You go uh, and you, you actually have a physical system that you perturb in some way and you keep an unperturbed version of that, a control version of that uh, un unchanged. And you ask, what is the effect uh, of the of the perturbation of the change of the of the affect that you apply to this system that you're studying? And how does that compare with the controlled version? And you could do this now. Uh, you could do that with a frog. You can give it some, you know, some, uh, I don't know, give a frog monkey pox. I'm not sure what, what I would give the frog. But anyway, you can do it. You get an actual, honest to goodness experiment and compare it to an un, uh, uh, unchanged uh, sample. How do you do that with astronomy? How do you change the temperature of Rigel A, you know, or how do you uh, move the planet uh, that, that uh, James Webb just looked at? called wasp 96 b which is the title of my next album uh and that uh you know how do you change the temperature of that atmosphere and see well what is that how does that affect the spectroscopy no you can't do that so now that's astronomy where at least there's like billions or maybe more uh tens of billions of exoplanets but there's only one universe right so you're asking a very good question how do you do an experiment the answer is you don't uh what you do instead you can't even do statistical analyses, but you can observe. You can see the things that come into your instruments. And then you can ask, what is the expected behavior of those signals if the universe began with a Big Bang, if it began with a singularity, if it began with inflation, or if it began with a bounce or a cycle? And those will have very different leftover byproducts that we can observe and test in data that's coming into the instrument that I co-lead with my collaborators around the world called the Simons Observatory, which is the biggest, most ambitious experiment of its kind ever funded. It's about a $100 million project. And uh, we are looking for the shrapnel in the form of ancient artifacts that travel through space and time. And these are called primordial gravitational waves. And I discuss that, yes, in, in greater depth in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, but And on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, I discuss these phenomena quite frequently. And, and what I kind of pride myself on, if I can toot my own horn uh, more than I normally do because my wife's in the other room, but, uh, <laughs> but I can say that the way that Neil um, approaches things or Brian Greene or Brian May or, or Brian Cox. I mean, can you see that, like, how bad it feels to be your kid's fourth favorite Brian astronomer? And this is ridiculous, right? Um, but nevertheless, uh, those guys and gals, you know, Lisa, we can add a ton of uh, Jan Levin, who's a friend of your show, I know. Um, we, can, we can say they're all theoreticians. They're all approaching the cosmos from a theoretical perspective. They're not building instruments. And that's no knock on them. They're, they're far smarter than I am. But what my colleagues and I do is actually try to collect the physical evidence from the scene of the crime. When the Big Bang occurred, 
the universe was much smaller. It should have definitive physical consequences that we can measure and either validate or invalidate. And and we were close once before in the story of Bicep 2 that I describe in Losing the Nobel Prize, um, but we made this fundamental error, not a blunder, we didn't leave the lens cap on or something silly. We misinterpreted, overinterpreted what the data were telling us. Now, with advancements in our technology and improvements, there's now not only Bicep 3, there's a fourth generation called Bicep Array that my, now they're kind of my competitors, friendly competitors. Uh, uh, for Some of them are friendly to me, I should say. Uh, <laughs> and then the Simons Observatory. We're kind of in competition for this grand goal of definitively, this time, measuring both the dust signal from the micrometeorite type particles that I'm going to send to the those of you who sign up for the mailing list. Um, but also, we can also attempt to measure the cosmic primordial signals, and we can do both now for the first time in, in human history, and perhaps really illuminate how the universe began. Was it a bang or was it a was it a crunch? So what, is, what, what does bicep actually look like? Like what are the, and the, the big, your experiment, your, your $100 million dollar Array. Well, like, you got to go to the gym, you know, and stuff, and yeah. work on. You got to protein and such. So yeah, what, what what do I see if I go? If I go, where is it for starters, and or okay. is it in multiple so, places? Yeah, no. So bicep is located at the very geographic uh, South Pole, the butthole of the planet. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's located in Antarctica. Uh, at the South Pole, which is uh, actually a 9,000-foot block of ice, uh, which is slowly melting, sadly. But uh, but for now, we have a telescope inside of a, uh, a very futuristic-looking building, like something out of Star Wars, Planet Hoth or something. Uh, and it's a refracting small aperture telescope. It's only about 30 centimeters or 12 inches in diameter. Uh, and BICEP observes using not uh, retinal cells or uh, like you would uh, see if you attach your eye to a refracting telescope, uh, but uh, actually connected to superconducting detectors that are quite advanced. Again, I describe a lot of this on my channel or on, uh, in my books, but, um, but the, the key component of it is it's a very simple telescope. It's just a refracting telescope. What's complicated about it is it has to be cooled down to just a whisker above absolute zero and it has to remain almost, you know, uh, in, indefinitely uh, free from contamination, from light pollution or heat pollution at the South Pole for, you know, now it's, it's we installed the first generation in 2005. So we're on 17 years uh, almost of, of continuous observing the Big Bang, you looking at the heat left over from it called the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's, I had uh, no idea. It's at the South Pole. That's crazy. I don't know why. I, I thought it was... I don't know where I thought it was. An island and somewhere it, it, that wasn't uh, <laughs> actual. And it's at the South Pole because real estate there is cheap? Yeah. <laughs> if you can get there, it's very cheap. Yeah. If you can get there. Let me, the the uh, problem is it's very hard to get there. And it's very expensive. And thankfully, the U.S. taxpayers uh, pay for my trip there. Uh, but it's, there's, there's really not much to see once you get there. It's basically, imagine you go out into the middle of the, the ocean, freeze everything, and coat it in a powdery snow. And it's basically flat uh, in 700 miles in all directions. So oh it's pretty God. it's pretty boring looking. Now, the people there are great. I love the people there. Um, uh, and the main kind of difference between that and the Simons Observatory, which is my main project now, which is the $100 million project, is that the, the Simons Observatory is located in Chile. Now, that's important because in Chile, we can actually see more than, um, uh, than Bicep can see. Because uh, if you imagine going to the, to the North or South Pole, the sky just rotates around you every day. There's nothing new in the sky uh, day or night. In fact, 
when the uh, winter comes, the, the sun is down for six months. It's below the horizon for six months. So you can actually see stars and stuff, but they just make giant circles around your head all day long, every day for six months. Mm -hmm. In Chile, it's closer to the equator. So you can see more of the 360 degree sphere, you know, a spherical sky uh, than you can from the South Pole. So that's one benefit. Um, the consequence is that we have to be at 17,200 feet above sea level. The South Pole is only 9,000 feet. And every 1,000 feet you go up in altitude, it's like going to a different planet because you, you actually have to wear oxygen at the uh, Chilean site that we don't have to wear in, in the South Pole. And there are virtues and vices of each place. But the main reason we go to these places, guys, is because we're looking for microwaves. We're looking for microwaves from the early universe. These are precious photons. Every, pre every photon's precious in its own way, to quote the life of Brian, uh, my fifth favorite Brian I mentioned today. And that uh, photon gets absorbed in a water molecule just like it does in your microwave oven. So you'd prefer to go to space, but space costs 100 or 1,000 times more expensive. You know, the James Webb Space Telescope is, is exactly the same size as one of our telescopes in, in Chile, uh, and it costs literally 1,000 times more than the, uh, than the telescope that we're building in Chile. So uh, it's very difficult to take advantage of, of space, but we get as close as we can by going as above as much of the atmosphere as we can. That's a, okay. Did you say 18,000 feet? Uh, close, 17,500. Wait, what's... what? That's on a mountain then, right? Like it's the, the Andes, a, right? The yes, Andes? It's, exactly. It's in the Andes Mountains. There's active volcanoes around us. Uh, it's pretty wild like Everest stuff. is 27,000. So let's get... I mean, it's taller than anything in the U.S., including Denali, I think. Yeah. Right? And we have to yeah. build every single thing. I think Denali is 20,000 feet. Oh, but, is but anyway, it? Okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but, but, we, but the interesting thing is uh, we have to build everything up there. We have to build buildings, platforms, concrete. We have to build... Um, uh, you know, we have to bring up diesel generators generators and bring in uh you know fuel and we have to buy stuff you know in chilean uh pesos you know and and, and convert some things are in euro i mean this is a, the world's one of the world's most remote highest altitude i think it's the highest or second highest um altitude construction site on earth and it happens to be for astronomical purposes and it's a the wonderful site we, we are gonna have to do a follow-up episode where we find out more about your travels because i want to know about your we're just at the very end of the episode, we're finding out that you've, you're off to Antarctica, you're <laughs> yeah. climbing mountains, uh, all, all in the aid of research. But uh, we are out of time, so how yeah. uh, we, we, we we all have to run off to things. Um, so, uh, including, by the way, the, the Comedy Cellar in Vegas. Anyone in Vegas, come and visit me. I'm here all week at he's, Rio. He's building a uh, telescope down there. I've, I am. I am. It's very, we're, I'm very, we're very low budget. Room. But, the, yeah, the Comedy Cellar in Vegas, uh, we're building a telescope. Um, uh, Pro Brian. tip, guys. Pro, pro tip, guys. Don't build telescopes in a cellar. Uh, <laughs> now you tell us. Well, this is well, less depends for what you want to look at. Depends exactly. What. <laughs> less, for, less for astronomy, if you catch my drift. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's right next to where you keep the lotion, and it's. Uh, <laughs> it's Brian, where can our listeners? Uh, where can our listeners find all of the things you do? Your your podcasting, your books, and and your YouTube and everything. I'll, I'll just send you to, to two places. One is uh, one is uh, my mailing list, BrianKeating.com uh, slash list, and that will enter you if you're the first hundred lucky listeners to this show. I know you've got many, uh, and you're in the USA again. I'm sorry, I can't send it outside the USA. Uh, I have a budget as a, as a state university professor. Um, but uh, I will send uh, the first hundred folks a meteorite sample of the villain of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize. 
And I, and you'll find out all the information you need about my podcast into the impossible, which is available on the same app you're listening to this on. Um, and, uh, also you can find me on, uh, on Twitter where I'm Dr. Brian Keating and the same on YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating. So do all that. Anything else to plug Andy, Jesse? Not at no, all. No, no. Well, um, no, I mean, we're all back in a, in a couple days, but, uh, Brian, it's so we, cool that you could carve out the time for us. We can't thank yeah, you I enough. Yeah, followed you guys for a long time congratulations on your success i look up to all the great guests you've had on and maybe we'll do a crossover someday you guys will come on my show well, we would love to yeah. we would love to let's let's make that happen and listeners thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time yeah. take care Bye.